Episode 154 of the PJ Archive is an interview I did with the distinguished English tennis professional who went on to become even better known as a radio and television commentator on the game, Dan Maskell. Known as the voice of tennis, Dan commentated on Wimbledon for the BBC from 1949 until his retirement in 1991. Dan Maskell died in 1992 at the age of 84. My interview with him took place at Wimbledon in 1984, when I was training as a radio journalist. Ever the gentleman, Dan didn't want us to disturb anyone at the Ord England Club, and he insisted we talk in his car as it was parked on the concourse beside court number four. Dan, you've been commentating on tennis for 33 years now. Has the game changed much since you first started? Well, I think it's faster. I, I really do think it's faster. And uh, more and more players play the all-court game as compared with back in those days. Uh, the players are, are much fitter, I'm quite sure of that, since professional tennis came in particularly. They're much fitter and much stronger. And uh, they should be, of course, because it's our profession. They spend their, their time doing it. Uh, whereas before uh, they were amateurs. There may have been a great deal of pseudo-amateurism too, but at least um, in those days people didn't get so much time to uh, concentrate on performing at tennis and practicing, and, and they're certainly much fitter and much faster, and generally speaking, right through from the people who qualify to the chap who wins it, every starter of, of the championships, they all play an all-court game, or more or less all play an all-court game. Perhaps Extraordinarily, it's Borg, who had such a, an astonishing record of five Wimbledons in succession, who you couldn't really say that he was an all-court player. He was basically a baseliner, but he was, of course, beginning to volley much more when he uh, won his last two Wimbledons. Have the standards dropped as markedly as they appear to have done in behaviour? In behaviour? No, you see, I think what has happened is that we've got four or five players who are notorious for their uh, sometimes outrageous behaviour and so on. Generally speaking, the championship behaviour, uh, except, if you like, for, for that little group, uh, is very good indeed. And I'm always saying this, and I shall go on saying it until I'm proved wrong otherwise. The behaviour of the world today, if you like, is lower, isn't it? In every profession, uh, standards are much lower in terms of general behaviour, or at least they've changed. And tennis, I don't think, has suffered as badly as, say, cricket, football, and many other things. I really think we are very lucky that behaviour in tennis hasn't deteriorated to that extent. Uh, never forget that years ago there used to be the occasional man at the top who wasn't exactly the most perfectly behaved man in this world. But um, it's just a, a four or five chaps who create rather a lot of publicity because of their behaviour. But I think, honestly and truly, I think things are much better than they were. When there is a dispute, do you think the commentator should stay neutral or should come down on one side or the other? Oh, no, I think the commentator should, should say exactly what he feels. Um, if he's an honest reporter, and I hope I am, I think you have to say. Uh, this man, like McEnroe, he, he is a brilliant player. He's one of the world's greatest players, a connoisseur's tennis player. But his behaviour today warrants uh, disqualification or, or a severer penalty. Oh, certainly I do. Do you ever get tempted to take sides during a match? No, I hope not. I, I naturally get enthusiastic when British players are doing well. You know, I, I'm fresh in blood. My, all my life, my job has been to try and produce Whiteman Cup, Davis Cup players and promising juniors and so on. 
And so I naturally expand when British players are doing well or better than we'd anticipated. I get too uh, a little excited, although some people don't get excited on TV. I certainly get a bit excited inside me when men like McEnroe produces Tennis of the Gods. When Nastasi was at his best and, and before his behaviour became uh, impossible, when he, his behaviour was, was a, a little extraordinary, but usually with some humour about it, he excited me. That sort of tennis excited me, uh, as it always does. I mean, uh, we've got a few great artists at the game. It's like skating, Torville and Dean, you see. I mean, um, you can't help but be excited by that, and uh, you, get, you get passionate about it, I think. Do you get very emotional? No, not really. I think the only time that I really found difficulty through emotion was when Virginia Wade won uh, Wimbledon. I coached her when she first came back to this country uh, at the age of 15 and a half. I coached a bit, and I'd had a lot to do with her tennis, wiping cup time and that sort of thing. And uh, I knew her and liked her, and, and um, I respected her. She's a very intelligent girl, and uh, I thought it was marvellous that she got her degree during the Whiteman Cup when she was actually playing in the Whiteman Cup. You know, that was a tremendous effort. And when she won, you see, I, I always say once at least during Wimbledon, usually on Finals Day, players had to come through this awe-inspiring hall here with the cups on one side, the famous names on the other. Uh, the steps leading up to the raw box, and they have to go through the performance of being taken out on the court and so on. And I always say, and also, they have to come through, they can't get onto the centre court to play without passing under Kipling's lines, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same. Now, Virginia Wade had played, what, 16 Wimbledons before she won it, and she'd had, uh, she'd had great victories, she'd had appalling defeats, she had time and again lost matches which she shouldn't have lost, uh, for various reasons, lack of concentration or, or lack of match sense, but eventually triumphed, and of course, on what a day, the, when the Queen was here, you see, and, and uh, centenary year, I found when I had to sum up the thing, you know, and I'd said, as I usually do, that's it, she's done it, I then had to sum up the scene, of course, and uh, I found it very difficult to, um, to, to sort of pay the right appreciation of the situation. I had a frog in my throat, and... Um, but so did many, many other people, of course, if they, if they were fond of British tennis. And so did many other people who knew her career, uh, whether they were British or not. Players are always very conscious of, of their competitors and what their uh, record has been in the game. And I'm quite sure there were almost everybody who played in that championship, even the people she beat, I think, felt, well, she's, she's deserved it. Why can't the British players do as well as the Americans and the Swedes, for instance? This is an old question. Uh, um, I'll tell you why what I think is missing. I really do think, and, and uh, I think I, I was brought up in the era of games, you play them for fun, for recreation, for companionship, to keep fit. You don't go onto the court, I'm sure, when you start playing, like the young soldier who wants to be a field marshal, you know. You don't go on thinking, I must be the world champion, I must beat everybody I, I, I play. You really don't, or at least it's very un-British, and still is. Now, the only person I know who was like that, when I say the only one, I think one of the very few anyway, was Fred Perry. Now, Fred Perry, we, we've often laughed about this together. I've often said to Fred, Fred, all your success at tennis and various other things that you've done is because you're so highly competitive. You simply have to be uh, the best. You set yourself very high standards, which is great, like great actors, great singers and everybody. You have your own standards, like McEnroe, of course, 
excellence is what you're after all the time. And if you played well today, then tomorrow you must play better. You're highly competitive. You're the most un-English Englishman I know. And we often laugh about this. But Fred had a great deal of his upbringing, of course, in America too. But this is what I notice every time I go to America, whether I go to New York, Dallas, Kansas City, or wherever, for tennis, or, or California. I notice that youngsters on the court playing, they are so keen. And the whole of life, particularly in New York, is so competitive that you have to be tough. You cannot be dominated by anyone. And you, you have to dominate. You may do it in a nice sort of way. But there is that underlying difference, I think, between the British people and, and the, uh, the Americans, particularly the Americans. The Swedes, I, I don't think it's so obvious in, in Sweden. But what I think has happened in Sweden is that the Borg victories have excited the young people, uh, excited everybody, I think. And you tend to have a following after a great champion. Although it didn't happen in this country in, 19, uh, in 1936, after we'd won the Davis Cup in 1933, and I was the coach of the team. While Austin Perry, Hughes and Lee were winning the Davis Cup in Paris in 1933, and we retained it until 1936, until 1937, when Fred Perry said 1936 would be my last year, then I'm turning professional. And so in 1937, Fred wasn't there, and um, we lost the Davis Cup. Now, that was interesting, because all through that period of British supremacy, and Dorothy Round, uh, a girl champion who later became Mrs. Little, won Wimbledon in 1934 and 1937, and Fred Perry and Dorothy Round won the mixed, and we had a great doubles pair, and we had an all-British final in that period. You know, at that time, in the golden years of British tennis, I and the Lawn Tennis Association, the all England Club, everyone to do with tennis, were conscious that we ought to be producing reserves for when they took over, because we had seen what had happened in the great French era, in the 20s, when the French uh, held the Davis Cup for all those years, Broach, Lacoste, Brunion, and Lacoste. Um, they won it from America in America and then held it, what, six years in, in, in France. So the golden period of French tennis. Three of them won Wimbledon six times, Broach, Lacoste, and Cosse each won it twice. Now, when they retired, when they sort of came out, they hadn't got the reserves. They'd got some very young promising players like Christian Boussou and Andre Merlin, who'd played so well against us in 1933 in the fifth rubber against Fred Perry. But they lost their grip on the Davis Cup, and they found it difficult to produce players. And these things are very much a gift of the gods, and I think what is happening at the moment is two things. They've hit a very good cycle, I think, in, in Sweden with their young players. They've got a tremendous national enthusiasm for tennis, much uh, brought about by Bergelin, who was the father, friend, and philosopher to, to Borg, of course. And um, I think the two things are, um, are producing, are helping to produce their present uh, glut. They're very, very fine young players, I really do. How much a part of your life is tennis? Well, all of it, really. I mean, uh, I've done a lot of other things to keep sane and keep well balanced, I hope. I, I've played golf since I was a kid of 17. I've skied. Skiing is my greatest love. I don't really like to say this publicly, but if you were to say to me, you've got one day of sport left, I imagine it would be tennis on the grass at Wimbledon, I'd have to say from the bottom of my heart, no, it wouldn't. It would be a, a day ski mountaineering in, in Engelberg in Switzerland. I've skied all my, uh, all my adult life, actually, and uh, I skied all over the place. And during the war, I was fortunate enough to... Uh, I used to carry my skis about with me, and I've skied a lot on Dartmoor and actually skied at Loughborough, on the small hills around Loughborough, where I was uh, when we were bombed out at the Palace Hotel at Torquay, 
when I was in charge of RAF rehabilitation of orthopedic injuries. And then we removed, we lost 20 patients, two VADs and a nursing sister. And I lost my senior NCO who was actually doing my job on that weekend, bombed out. And we eventually went to Loughborough, Loughborough which is now Loughborough University, but Loughborough which I knew well and which um, eventually, not because of that, uh, but Loughborough's had quite an influence on my life. My, uh, my son was born in Loughborough Hospital during the war. I used to run courses for the LTA and summer courses for Loughborough College at Loughborough. I was there actually when the uh, Germans walked. I was actually with Leonard Vavasar, who was the chairman of the Lawn Tennis Association Professionals Committee. I was actually there helping to pass out examining sportsmasters and sportsmistresses for the LTA amateur diplomas on the Friday when Poland was invaded by Germany. Dr. Schofield, the principal as he was then, the man who really built up uh, Loughborough into uh, colleges and university, he came across and he said, gentlemen, I think you're wasting your time. Just heard on the radio that Poland has been invaded by Germany. And Sir Leonard Vavasar, who was uh, an admiral, he had to go back uh, to Gosport, where he, I believe, was on the reserve. And I was on my way up to um, where we played a great professional championship once with Tilden and Koshi and French boy named Ramillon and myself got into the final of the doubles against Budge and Vines and lost, we'd beaten Tilden and Burke. But um, Southport, Victoria Park, where they built, uh, the first time we went up to play, they built a court which held about 5,000 people. And um, I was on the way up to sort of help them make arrangements for, um, and of course never got there. Actually stayed with friends in Liverpool, who I'd promised to, to call on and um, phoned and eventually got hold of Wollstoneholm, the town clerk, and said, well, I don't think we need bother. And that was that. And I came back and, and I volunteered for the RAF. And I spent five and a half years in the RAF. Apart from commentating, how else are you involved in the game of tennis? Apart from commentating? Well, I retired from the LTA. I left the All England Club, where I was a professional for, what, uh, since 1929. I wanted to retire in 1953. I felt I was getting too old for boys like Wilson and Billy Knight and others. And um, I, the Lawn Tennis Association wanted a training manager who really was uh, the man they wanted to develop the coaching side, train teachers, train professionals and so on, and coordinate the various coaching schemes and, and develop the game. And so with the, uh, with the approval of the All England Club, I retired in 1955. In 1953, they made me an honorary member of the club, and then it took us two years until George Wellington came from Australia, who sadly died after being with us ten years, came when he was 26, and he died from cancer at the age of 36. And I sort of groomed George for six months or so. While I went to the LTA as training manager, I was grooming George to take on the job here. And the end of the story was that George and I stayed great friends, and uh, in fact, he was buried from my house. So I left the club in 1955, and they made me an honorary life member, which was a tremendous thrill, of course. And I went to the LTA as the training manager, and uh, I stayed there doing that sort of work, lecturing at teachers' training colleges and all around the country. And I revolutionized the coaching scheme connected with um, amateur coaches, used to be called Part 1, or elementary, now called Part 1, and then advanced, now called Part 2. And you had to get those two certificates as amateurs and have experience of amateur coaching. And then you could apply to become a, a registered professional coach. And then we had, I used to organize 12 through the LTA, used to organize 
12-day residential courses at, at uh, Lillishall in the Midlands, you know. And then we, I used to set up the, uh, the, the course and uh, used to have a couple of other instructors with me, sometimes three. And we used to take about 20, 24 at a time, men and women, and um, then the examination. And uh, it was a three-part exam. They coached a county junior, this was the sort of thing. The county junior, for half an hour, never having seen him before. And uh, there were two amateurs uh, on the LTA professional committee, watching and examiners and one professional. I wasn't, I didn't do that, I stood out from this. But we had one professional who, um, was in, so the three examiners, and um, they had a, a pupil, boy or girl, for half an hour they'd never seen before, and then about half an hour later they took a group of t about 12, a class group coaching, and they did that for about 20 minutes under the eye of the examiners, and then I used to set a paper, a 12-question uh, 12 paper, which could be done in an hour and a half quite easily, and was by many, but we allowed two hours for it, and this was a uh, a mixed uh, examination paper of a couple of rules questions, a uh, couple of technical stroke production questions, a couple of technical questions, something about doubles, and always one or two about the history of the game, that sort of thing. What's the greatest tennis match you've ever seen? Well, I think the greatest final I think I've seen was the um, 1933 Crawford and Vines, and on this court here, literally court four, I'd played with both of them the night before. They got to the semi, they got through the semi-finals on on Wednesday, and that was when we used to play the finals on the Friday. And so they'd had a day's rest. And on on Thursday evening, I went out here and practiced with Ellsworth Vines, the man with perhaps the greatest service that we've ever seen in tennis, certainly in my time. I had about 20 minutes, half an hour with him, and I came back and I was just taking off my shirt, and that great, great Australian Jack Crawford, who we all loved at this place, one of the great gentlemen in this game, like Vines. He said, Dan, I hope you're not too weary. Could you come out and have a bang with me? And I said, okay. So I went out with Jack and played. And a very strange thing happened. Vines said, Dan, I know I'm going to get a lot of heavily sliced backhands from Jack Crawford, because Jack Crawford really only had a sliced backhand. And I know he's going to take the ball quite early. Uh, but I want to get used to, to the slice, because Elizabeth Vines had a very flat forehand, and the slice ball, as you know, keeps lower on grass. And uh, the very flat forehand is a bit risky against the lower ball, of course. And Elsa Vines had this crushing forehand when the ball was a bit higher, but he had to feel for it a bit when it was a bit lower. Um, and he had, of course, this great serve and a six-foot-four man, tremendous reach. And so I sliced everything to him, you see. And I noticed that he really was having difficulty. And I think court four uh, that night was playing just as fast and just as firmly as the centre court. And I noticed that he uh, had great, not great difficulty, but he, but he had difficulty with particularly the three-quarter length ball that was between knee and waist height. And um, he couldn't control this. He'd hit the top of the tape, then he'd knock one about a yard out, and he didn't really have control of this, and he was beginning to get a bit anxious on, uh, on this. And I didn't say a word, of course, to him. Um, that was purely he, he wanted to warm up and loosen it. And then he did an interesting thing. He started to lift the ball, sacrificed his power, and started to lift the ball so that he cleared the net and tried to put it deep. It was a lifted forehand, tried to put it very deep into the backing corner. And then he smothered the net, the six-foot-four man, came in as quickly as he could behind it, 
So it obviously it, it was obvious to me that if he found his forehand wasn't going to work on the centre court as he would like it to, and as it, it would have done on a higher bound, uh, he was going to blanket the net, smother the net, um, not only when he served, of course, not only following the serving, but when he was a receiver and he was going to try and get in like that. Now, the interesting thing was that when I came in, I changed my shirt and I went out with Jack and I said to Jack Crawford, Jack, what, uh, what do you want to do? And he said, well, he said, I want to uh, hit as many serves as you can, hard as you like at me. I don't mind if only one in three go in, but belt the serve. I wasn't a bad server, but I wasn't really a cannibal server. And I said, well, if you don't mind, Jack, if only one in three goes in, I'll belt them as hard as I can. And uh, so he, he had some practice against taking fast serves. And then the other thing he uh, said was, would you hit your forehand as flat as you can? And I said, because you're going to slice at it. And he said, I mean, the tactics were quite obvious. And um, so I cracked my forehand as flat as I could. I used to have a, a lifted forehand, slightly lifted forehand, and found this lower slice ball, of course, was a bit difficult to, uh, difficult to hit. But I hit them and hit them and hit a lot out and hit a lot in that, but I gave them a lot of practice on the very fast ball. Just before we finished, um, I said, I'll play this differently to you, Jack. And he sliced his line, and I lifted it and went in, tried to smell the net, so he now had a chance to practice his passing shot. Anyway, the interesting thing about this is, at that time, the best tennis magazine in the world, magazine in the world was called American Lawn Tennis, and it was owned, edited, and run by a man named Stephen Wallace Merrihue, who was one of the truly great enthusiasts, marvellous journalist. And throughout this tennis magazine, which uh, used to uh, go all over the world and recognise the greatest magazine, you, you had the feeling of this tremendous love and this tremendous passion for the game and this tremendous interest in people. And he, I think, had not been to England for, for about six years. And he was in the crowd watching it. And um, as we came off, he put his hand on my shoulder and said, Dan Hart, this old gentleman, lovely man. And uh, I said, hello, Wallace, how are you? And Jack, I said, Jack, I'll catch up in a minute. And he said, well, that was fascinating. He said, I saw both knock-ups there. Fascinating. Now, who's going to win tomorrow? And I said, oh, my God, you know, you can, can never tell on, on the eve of uh, great matches or what might be great matches, who's going to win. Uh, nerves and so many things uh, come into consideration. But if I had to, if I was pressed, if you pressed me to, to say who is going to win it, I would say Jack Crawford, because um, Jack is quite, quite playing on the instinct level whereas Elspeth Lines is very much on the conscious level, finding a little difficulty with his forehand, aware that his forehand might be a little bit dodgy. And I would say that um, always it's the man who has no consciousness of, of weakness on strokes, whose mind is free to, to think tactically about dominating the other man, is the winner. And so I'd, I'd say Jack Crawford, it happened to turn out that way, Jack, one in this fabulous uh, five-setter. The interesting thing was some 25 years later, when the, I think the book had now become world tennis as it is today, uh, they had a uh, they had a feature in the thing 25 years ago, and they what appeared in the magazine, and there was this piece about uh, Maskell correctly um, anticipating the result, which was interesting. Uh, but the magazine, I don't think today is quite as good as uh, it used to be. In fact, I think the world still lacks uh, the world of tennis still lacks a truly great magazine. Um, we haven't anything comparable with, I don't think, in tennis, uh, golf magazines. Who, in your opinion, is the greatest player of all time? 
Well, again, if I think this is awfully difficult, but if I had to choose somebody, I think it would be it would be a choice of Donald Budge, who won Wimbledon, who won the Grand Slam you know, before the war, the great Donald Budge, a uh, complete all-court player with a fabulous backhand, marvellous, marvellously powerful backhand, uh, and Rod Laver, who did um, something that I'm um, well can never begin, um, can never be done again because the game is now professional. He won the amateur Grand Slam, like uh, like Donald Budge, so he was the first to equal Donald Budge's record. And then eight or nine years later, being in the wilderness when the game uh, was truly amateur, he turned professional, and he came back and he did it again as a professional, which is unbelievable, unbelievable. And um, I think I would, he would just tip the scales for me. He's the greatest, I think. What about the ladies? Well, I used to say Alice Marble. Uh, she was a great all-court player, an American girl, who's still alive. And uh, she was here for the centenary parade. You know. And uh, she was a great all-court player, and she played very much like a man. And the reason I'd say that, as compared with Suzanne Longland and compared with Helen Wills Moody and, uh, and others like uh, Chris Abbott, she was an all-court player, played very much like a man, had a beautiful serve and volley game. When I used to practice with her, as I practiced with all the girls at the time, she was the one girl who could serve and make you feel that you had to return the ball low over the net and very accurately low over the net, whether you were going a cross-court pass or down-the-line pass. You couldn't afford to hit it more than a few inches above the net, and it had to be fairly accurate, because her volley, first volley was so good. Now, against all the other girls, uh, even though some of them used to serve and volley, uh, you could float the ball, you could make sure of your return and then get into the rally. But she was the only woman I've ever played who I felt made me, and I was playing very well in those days, uh, who made me feel like playing against a good man. And um, she was a beautiful volleyer. She had a slight weakness on her forehand, she had a lovely backhand, slight weakness on her forehand that used to go a bit awry, like Maureen Connolly, her forehand was comparatively weak on her backhand. I used to say, uh, Alice Marble, I'm not so sure now, I'm not so sure now that uh, in some ways I wouldn't say uh, uh, Margaret Court, Billie Jean King, and now Navratilova, now Navratilova. I first, first saw her play when she was 16 and a half, when she came to play in the BP Cup at Torquay on Palace Hotel Covered Courts, which play like grass, slow wood, and uh, Labour and others practiced when it's been wet at Wimbledon, they practiced at Queen's on the Wood. And I saw this girl, having heard about her through again the magazines, and never seen her, we hadn't seen her in this country, and she came and played for Czechoslovakia in the uh, BP Cup there. And um, I watched her play, as we all did, watched her practicing, and um, she had everything that a grass court player would need. I mean, she was an all court player, um, a little erratic, of course, uh, second serve wasn't as good as it is now. Um, but she had all the, the the equipment, and I thought, my goodness, what a wonderful piece of material for a coach, whoever has the good fortune to, to have that material. And um, I remember Westwood, I think it was Westwood Television then, were down there to, for this and asked me if I'd say a few words about uh, the thought. And I said, well, I think we've seen a girl today who, if I'm not mistaken, unless something very seriously goes wrong in five years' time, she could be a Wimbledon winner. And um, she today is a, a truly great player. Still, I think, temperamentally, there's a slight weakness in the temperament, as we saw when she lost the American Championship to Tracy Austin, when she'd won the first set in a gale of wind, won it easily, and was, what, 5-1 and 30-all in the second. 
uh, match point, I think she had championship point, and had the simplest forehand volley, and she tended to be a bit overconfident and uh, lost her head a bit, got too excited and missed the volley, and, and, and uh, Tracy Austin came back into the match and won it. The championship should, should never have been lost. But I mean, now she's, she's a, a better match player, and her temperament is better, and so on. And she's a tough girl. And she has the thing I was talking about just now. She wants to dominate everyone. You know? She must be the best. Finally, why is Wimbledon the number one tournament? Well, first of all, of course, it's because it's the oldest. It's the oldest tournament in the traditions. Two, it's always attracted, uh, because of its prestige, it's always attracted the greatest players from all, all around the world. When Wimbledon was the, 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 the peak, the acme of, of perfection. The other thing is, as we can see today, it's got a lovely atmosphere, this atmosphere uh, in the country, the grass courts are looking lovely. Uh, and as Herman David, uh, the chairman of the Lawn Tennis Association, who died just before it was taken over by um, Sir Brian Burnett, I interviewed him one day on the first day of Wimbledon. On the very first day of Wimbledon, before it started, about half past one, quarter to two, and I asked him the very question. I grew up with Herman. Um, I was a professional here, and, and he played for Oxford and University, and eventually became a member of the club and eventually the chairman. And I was his coach when he became Davis Cup captain, non-playing captain of the Davis Cup team. And I remember saying to Herman, well, why is it that Wimbledon has this phenomenal success and, and is the envy of the sporting world? You know, it sells all its tickets out in January and so on and so on. And uh, he said, well, Dan, I think really the answer lies not only in the tennis, but we hold one of the world's great sporting championships in a garden party atmosphere. And I think this sums it up, you know. I mean, just if you walk up on the centre court steps, you look across there, there's the golf course. If you look out here, there's the, the St Mary's Church. And the whole thing has got... Except that now, of course, it's so big. And, uh, I mean, inevitably, it has to uh, keep up with the times and it's become commercial and the stands have to be bigger and uh, we have to have better accommodation for everybody, you know, the staff, the players, the umpires, the linesmen, uh, the public. And I think Wimbledon has always uh, never forgotten that uh, what you're holding here is a world championship. Therefore, players from all over the world, you must give them world championship conditions, the best possible courts, the best possible changing rooms, treatment rooms, physiotherapists and cars to get them in. You wouldn't expect Yehudi Menuhin to come from Hampstead to play a great thing at the Albert Hall and expect him to go on a bus and, and so on. And Wimbledon, and today, uh, and perhaps that was forgotten a few years ago, perhaps that was forgotten that Wimbledon had to keep up not merely its playing facilities, but all the other things that are necessary in the world today. Players are professionals and, and uh, they train hard, they work hard, and they expect to have other things, other amenities um, comparable. And the uh, other championships, uh, French championships, were, were, were very aware of this and have revolutionized the amenities of State Roland Garros, one of the great places. It's a delight to go to State Roland Garros now. And so I think for those reasons, Wimbledon remains the great championship.